welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 today. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, I don't really know what it is about being a human being, but there's something about us that always thinks the grass is greener on the other side. And that's true, especially with time, isn't it? Like, we're always looking to the future, that somewhere in the future it's going to be better. Like, tomorrow morning is Monday. I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to say, I can't wait till Friday. Like, am I the only one here that does that? Like, we do that. And and what I've noticed is there are different places in our life that we're constantly looking to the future. Maybe we're looking forward to that weekend. Maybe there's a holiday that means something for us. Maybe it's getting close to summertime. Maybe we're like, I've got to have a vacation. I've got to get out of here. But I see people look forward in life nowhere more than when they start to look forward to retirement. Some of you guys are retired. Some of you guys are like me. You're never going to retire. And some of you guys are like on that downhill slope. Now, if you don't know, I'm a teacher. I work at a school. And here's what I have observed about teachers at school is once they get over the, I don't know if you guys know this, teachers can retire after 28 years. 28 years of teaching, we can retire. And if you do the math on that, that makes most teachers in their early to mid 50s when they can retire. Some of you may be thinking, that's not fair. Oh, trust me, it is. Because by the time we're 55, we look like we're 65. By the time we're 55, we think like we're 75. By the time we're 55, we're almost as close to death as if we were 95. Like, trust me, it's fair because of y'all's kids. Um, Anyway, so, sorry. To all my teacher friends, that one was free. You guys appreciated that, I know. But I've noticed something about teachers. When they start to get towards like that, like right over that 20-year hump of, of being a teacher, like something changes in them because they're looking forward to retirement. Like all of a sudden, they say these crazy things like, only seven more years. And I've been teaching now for eight years. I'm like, seven more years? I've been teaching for, eight. that's like six lifetimes. I'm pretty sure I'm 92 from all of these kids and teaching and you got the audacity to say only seven more years but they just look at me and they go only seven more years and to them they're looking forward to it and what I found with these teachers that are on that 20 plus years in education is that they can walk through those last few years with hope of what's going on to the future I can't do that I may not go to work tomorrow, I'll be honest with y'all, but they can go with hope. They can go with hope because they can see what's coming in the future. And as people, as human beings, forget retirement. Let me ask us, what drives you towards the future? What is it that you find hope in in the future? Because I've got, I've got news for you. At the end of the day, when you look to the future, we're all marching towards one fate. And that one fate is our own death. So what is it that you and I can look forward to, that we can find hope like a teacher who is coming to retirement, where we can walk with the peace that the future is going to be good to us? Do, do we run from the future or do we delight in it? What I want to talk to you today about today is our future and what God promised us in the Bible. If you haven't joined us here recently, we've been in a series called The Dilemma, and we've been just tracking down this problem that all humans have, this this problem of sin in the world. See, God created this world perfect in every way, but yet you and I, we messed it up when we chose to disobey Him. 
We messed it up when we chose to go our own way. In the entirety of the world, the mountains are where God says they should be. The rivers flow when God says they should flow. The planets circle the sun because God says so. The only thing in this world that does not follow God's orders is me and you. And because of that, because of that sin in our lives, God has promised us that if there is sin in our lives, which there is in all of our lives, that a result of that sin is death, both physical and spiritual separated from God in this life, separated from God in the next. And there is no way out. There's no fixing that for me or you until Jesus walks onto the scene. And Jesus walks in on, to us and he says, oh, I see the sin in your life and I see the consequences of that sin, but I will take that away from you. I will take your death. I will take your punishment. I will take all of the punishment for your sin on myself so that you don't have to live with that separation from God. And Jesus walked this earth and then he was crucified and he was killed and all of God's judgment and all of God's wrath for my sin and for your sin was placed on him. And then three days later, Jesus walked out of the tomb. Now, for many of us, we look at that like that's the, that's the end of the story. Jesus walked out of the tomb. Salvation is available for us. We don't have to die. We don't have to experience physical death. Heaven is in the future for us. But what we found is if you continue this story, there's a lot of Bible after that. Last week, we looked at at Jesus for 40 days after uh, coming out of the ground. For 40 days, he walked the earth, proving he was who he said he was. And after 40 days, he ascended up into heaven, leaving with his believers, with his disciples, a mission for us to go on. And the Bible tells us that he gives us that mission to pursue others to him because he is not willing that any should perish. But that's also not the end. That's where we're at currently in the story. Right now, you and I are on the mission to tell people about Jesus, to tell people about salvation, to tell people you can have hope at the end of your life. But that's not the end of the story. And if you continue to read through the Bible, if you continue to read the story of Jesus, God has laid his plan out for us so that you and I know the future so that we can have hope. We don't know every detail. We don't know God's timing, but I can tell you with complete confidence that I, can, uh, that I know the future because God has written his plan to end death and sin in this world in his Bible. So before Jesus leaves, he, he gives his disciples this, this um, little bit of hope and this little bit of mission. And, and he says something else to them. This is in John 14, 3. I know you're in 1 Thessalonians. Stay there for a second. I'm going to meet you there. But this is John 14, 3. Jesus says this to his disciples before he leaves. He says, and if I go, um, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So in this, Jesus gives us this promise. He's like, look, if you watch me leave, I am coming back. And then last week in, first, in, the, uh, in the first chapter of the book of Acts, we see Jesus leave. So if we believe that, God, or that Jesus is who he says he is, if we believe that he is not only truthful, but that he is truth, then we believe that if he said, I am leaving, but when I leave, I will come, about, I will come back, we can rely on this promise that he is coming back in the future. So in your bulletin, if you've got your outline and you'd like to fill it out, our first take-home truth this morning is Jesus will come back to earth. And a lot of times when we talk about this, we talk about it in the future since we talk about the future second coming of Christ. When he comes to this earth a second time. See, the first time he came here, he came here as a baby. And they wrapped him in some old rags and they, they laid him in a feed trough. And he came here as a sacrificial lamb for you and me. That's, that's his first time to come here. And while he was here, he laid down his life so that you and I could have a relationship with God. 
But when he comes back, listen to me, nobody is wrapping him in any cloth. Nobody is laying him in a feed trough. Nobody is laying a hand on him when he comes back because he is coming back as the king of the world. He's promised this. He's coming back triumphant over death, triumphant over sin for a purpose. And it tells us in this verse, the purpose is, I am coming to receive you to myself. Where I am, you may also be. See, this, this promise is made to those of us that are followers of Christ. And the core of his commitment to coming to get us is togetherness. Look at what he says. He doesn't say, hey, I've got some things for you in the future. I'm going to make sure that you're happy. What does he say? I'm coming to get you so that where I am, you will be with me. And this undoes the problem that we find. This undoes the issue that we started with with sin from Genesis 2 and 3. If you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, when God created this earth, there was no separation between us and God. God walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. He just kind of strolled into their house. He, he talked with Adam and Eve. Like they, they just sit down and talked with him. And when Jesus comes back, he says, it's going to be like that again. We're going to be in the same place, no longer ruined or separated by sin. No more separation. No more death. That is enough. I'm coming to get my people. Our second take-home truth from the scripture is Jesus is coming back to get his people. And as Christians, we celebrate this. We look forward to this. We, we want Jesus to come back and get us. And we expect it for generations. We have been waiting, looking to the skies. When is Jesus coming back? For 2,000 years, he's coming back. He's coming back. I've heard many of you say, and I hope you're right. I've heard many of you say, I think he's coming back in my lifetime. I hope you're right. But we don't know. Uh, and the question is, why does Jesus promise to come back, but yet it takes him so long to do this? Why so long? Why, why 2,000 years? Jesus could have been gone 40 days. Jesus could have been gone seven years. 2,000 years later, we're waiting for Jesus to come back and get us. Why is that? Because every moment, listen, this is important to us as a church. Every moment that Christ delays his coming is an opportunity for me and you to grab somebody and say, let me tell you about Jesus. You know why Jesus has not come back yet? Because of grace. Because when he comes back, it's over. That's the end. When, when he comes back, there are no more second chances. And every minute that he is not back, every minute that he delays his coming is an opportunity for somebody else to come to know him, to change their eternity. Listen, guys, as Ramsey Heights, we need to start living that way. Hey, I woke up today. Jesus didn't come, come, come back and get me. It's because he wants me to tell somebody about Christ. It's because he wants somebody's eternity to be changed. That's the reason he's not come back to get me just yet. And so we wait patiently on the return of Christ, but yet we also know that we wait with a mission. We've got work to do. He's leaving us here for a purpose. Now, Jesus describes his return in 1 Thessalonians chapter 13. So, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 13. So let, let's, let's read this if you've got your Bibles with you. He tells us what it's going to be like, this promise of his return. Verse 13, this is Paul speaking. He says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to come back to that passage here in just a second. So there's this question among the believers at Thessalonica, and uh, Paul is writing to them, and he's, he's answering their questions about some things. And the questions they have is like, hey, we know Jesus is coming back. It's been years by this point. Jesus has not returned. And some people who have come to know Christ have passed away. And they have passed away, and they're, they're, just, they're just gone. 
So those believers are like, okay, well, Jesus is coming back to get us. We believe that. We know we're going to be where he is. But the question is, what about people that have died? What about them? Didn't he come to save us from death and yet they've died? How does this work with the return of Christ? They, they were concerned about their loved ones. And Paul answers, he says, look, there's, there's two types of people buried in that cemetery out there. Two types of people. And I want you to live like one type and not the other. The first type is the type of people that have hope because of Jesus Christ. That they accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They put their faith in Him. And the others are those who rejected Jesus Christ. And let me explain for you. Even those who are buried, even those who are buried, they still have that same hope in Jesus. They still have that hope that Jesus is undoing their death. I love the way that Paul words this. Listen to verse 13 here in the middle of it. He says, concerning them which are asleep. This is how he refers to dead people, is that they're asleep. They're, they're, they're not dead, they're, they're asleep, he says. And we all know that that's not true because we've all watched people that we love very dearly leave this world. We've all watched people that, that we didn't want to leave, leave. And we know they're not asleep. You can see it at a casket. So why does he say asleep. Why is that how Paul describes Christians who are dead? Well, today is Sunday afternoon. Today is Sunday afternoon, and today my wife on Mother's Day will go home, we will eat lunch, and she's going to crawl in bed and pull the covers over her, and she is going to go into a coma for two hours. And uh, so I brought this picture to show you what she looks like. Well, no, no, I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not going to die on Mother's Day. Not for y'all. I'm sorry. But she loves her Sunday afternoon nap. And what's interesting about her nap is it's not like this huge big deal for us. She's just like, hey, I'm going to take a nap. I'm like, hey, have fun. I don't know what to tell you. Like, go ahead. And the reason it's not a big deal is because, listen to this, she's going to lay in her bed. She's going to cover herself with the blankets and she's going to lay still for about two hours. But in two hours time, she's going to get up out of that bed and go about her day. Why does the Bible describe the death of Christians as a, belie as a believer as just being asleep? Because one of these days they're going to put me in a box and they're going to lay me under the ground and they're going to cover me up and I'm going to lay there for a little while. But one day, because of the promise of Jesus, I'm coming out of that, just like Jesus Christ came out of the grave. That's why he calls to this. It's a picture, it's a picture of how temporary death is for us. That in the, in the um, uh, compared to eternity, death is temporary. It is such a small thing, it is like a nap in our existence. Did you know that originally the word cemetery literally translated as translated sleeping place? And when we're a Christian, we can look forward to that, that even our physical death has no power over us because Jesus promised us, the same Jesus who was dead and who was alive, who walked out of the grave, he promised me and you, you will share in my resurrection. You will experience it just as I have. Uh, let's continue reading what Paul says about these people which are dead or are asleep. Verse 14. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, and the voice of an archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ, everybody say in Christ, shall rise first. 
Then, which we, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up alive with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So Jesus is coming back, and Paul tells us that in this moment, whether you are dead or alive, he's coming back for you. He's coming back to bring you back to life. We will share in the same resurrection that he experienced, and he will receive us so that we can be where he is. And a lot of times you will hear this referred to as the rapture. Now, I've got an interesting note that I've learned this week. You won't find the word rapture anywhere in the Bible. It's not in there. What the word rapture is, it is a, a former Latin word, just like we talked about baptism a few weeks ago. Instead of being translated, it was transliterated from Latin. Translated literally, the word rapture simply means to be caught up. To be caught up with Christ, as 1 Thessalonians says here. But I want you to notice this, and this is maybe the most important thing of this scripture for many of us in here this morning. Which people have the hope of this being their future? Which people have the hope of coming with Christ? Which people are looking forward to those, or looking forward to Jesus coming back? What you see is, is it's not everybody. It's not all the dead. It's not all the alive. It's those who are in Christ. And that's why as a believer of Christ, we can look forward to the return of Jesus Christ with excitement. He's coming back to get me. I'm ready to go. It's okay. But everywhere in the Bible where the return of Christ is mentioned, every place for those who are not in Christ, for those who are not followers, who have not placed their faith in him, every place in the Bible where uh, it discusses this, it's not a day of hope for those who are not in Christ. It's not a day of hope for those that don't know him. And if you're sitting here today and you're like, I don't have that hope, Brian. I don't, I don't have that. I don't know how to have that. I've got excellent news for you. You can have that hope before you leave here today. You don't even have to wait until invitation time. You can know for a shadow of the doubt that you have the hope of Christ coming to get you. That you don't have to live in fear of death for the rest of your life. It can be handled today. Because all Christ requires of us to be found in him is that we place our faith in him and receive his salvation. And if we do that, even if we physically die, we will be saved from spiritually death. Where what actually makes me, me, my soul, will be in heaven with Christ. But eventually, Jesus is coming back for everyone, for the living and the dead. And we will be saved from physical death like it was only a good night's sleep. Now, if you're like me and you're a believer, you're sitting here like, let's go. Let's get this over with. I don't know if you guys watch the news. This isn't fun anymore. This is a bad place. I don't, I don't enjoy being here. So I'm sitting here and I'm reading this and I'm studying this this week and I thank God so much for the opportunity to study this. I'm like, okay, Jesus, come get us. When? When are you coming back? It's gotta be soon, right? I mean, 2,000 years, is kind of a, it's kind of a long time. Some of our brothers and sisters of Christ have been sleeping for a really, really long time. But the Bible says this. Listen to what Jesus said. He says, but of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus here, he says, hey, look, I, even I don't know. Even I don't know when we're coming back. That is reserved for that part of the Trinity. God the Father is gonna send Jesus and say, go get them. Go bring them back. And so if you hear anybody telling you that, hey, I've done the math or I've, I've had it revealed to me through scripture when Jesus is coming back and it's this day or this week or this month or this year, just, just ignore them. 
You think that's funny. That's actually happened several times in, in our lifetimes. In the 1980s, some guy said, I know I have cracked the code of all the numbers in Revelation, and I know when Jesus is coming back. It is the funniest thing. They were selling like, hey, we'll come get your dog after you're raptured and stuff like that. People poured out all this money and maxed out their credit cards, and then they were there the next day. It's kind of sad, isn't it? Listen, take Jesus' word for it. We don't know. We don't know when he's coming back, but he is coming back, and that's what matters. Our next take-home truth is no one knows when Jesus will return. But we do have some clues that help us know the circumstances in which he will return. That's part of that plan that God helps us understand the future. He gives us the opportunity. He gives us the opportunity to know what his plan is. If you turn to the back of your Bible, you don't have to do it now. If you turn to the back of your Bible, there's a book there called The Revelation of John. A lot of times you'll hear people call it Revelations. It's not Revelations. It is Revelation, singular. I don't know why. It's kind of like people that go to Walmarts. You go to one Walmart. Anyway, so in the back of the Bible, in the back of your Bible is a book called Revelation. And that, coupled with some other prophetic books from the Old Testament, reveal God's plan. And a lot of times you will hear this called the end times. It reveals God's plan for the end times. What's going to happen at the end of the world? And just a basic overview, you could spend literally years teaching and learning about Revelation. It is Mother's Day. I don't have years today. I've got 20 more minutes is what I've got. So here's a basic overview of Revelation. Within Revelation, it speaks of a seven-year period that you will often hear called the tribulation period. This is the last seven years before a big change in the way the world is run. We'll talk about that next week. During this last seven years, it is God's last opportunity to get people's attention with who is really the God of this world. He is seeking out for one final time in this horrible time of tribulation, people to come to him. During this, Satan himself will wage a revolution against God. He will try to overtake this world. He will try to overthrow God off of his throne. And he will do that on the world with a person that we often call the Antichrist. You've probably heard of that. If you want to know who the Antichrist is, talk to me after church. It's one of our deacons. No, I'm kidding. You guys don't have to wake up a little bit. It's the young one, if that helps you. So the Antichrist, we don't know who it is. Now let me say this about the Antichrist before we go any farther. The Antichrist is not, it's not every president that you don't like, okay? Let's quit doing that. Let's quit accusing every president we don't like of being the Antichrist. No, just the opposite. If you read the Bible, the Antichrist is going to be a very charismatic, charismatic lovable figure. People are going to love him. They're going to flock to him. And you're going to be like, that can't be the Antichrist. He's too nice. But that's, that's going to be what happens. This Antichrist will rise to power and he will begin to overthrow God's plans here or try to overthrow. Now, in the middle of this tribulation period, somebody possibly could try to assassinate the Antichrist. We don't know. He's going to die. Or he's going to be so close to death that there's no way that he can make it. But magically, he will be healed and he will come back to life. And that is when people will start pointing, that must be God. And the Antichrist will begin to allow people to call him God. And there will be a cult of per people that worship him. And to worship him, there is a, what is called the mark of the beast that you will take up on you. You will have to have it to buy, to sell, to do anything. And anybody who chooses to follow God will have to reject this charismatic leader with all of this power. At the end of the seven years, at the end of the tribulation period, this is in Revelation 19. If you were here Wednesday night, we talked about this. In Revelation 19, Jesus comes back from heaven and he comes back as a warrior and he goes to war with the Antichrist and with the powers of this world and he overthrows them. That's called the Battle of Armageddon that you've probably heard about. 
And so when, when we look at this story, we know that some bad things are coming, but what comes after that is for a thousand years, Christ sits on this earth and he rules as king. And we look forward to that. Like, it doesn't sound fun. It doesn't sound like the kind of history that we really want to be involved in. But we know that God is doing something in this plan. Now, let me say this about, let me say this about Revelation. Revelation in the end times is written with a lot of symbolism. It's very cryptic. And so be very careful about how, how drawn in you get into one theory or another about what's going on this, during this time. But what we do know is that God has provided us a book with the ultimate end of the plan. And that helps us today. Let me explain why that helps us today. Well, I do have a picture this time, a real picture coming up up here on the screen. Let's go back to 10th grade English class. I know you guys are really excited about that. 10th grade English class, when you study literature, what you will study, this is a literary plot line. And what that means is every book in most of the movies that you read generally follows this particular pattern of how the book builds interest and how it resolves conflict. So at the beginning of the literary plot line, there's like this moment of normalcy, and then there's some kind of conflict, something that happens. And from that moment on, there's what's called the rising action. It's just question after question after question after question, angst after angst after angst. Depending on what kind of books you read, this is the part of the story when you're reading that relationship book, and he's like, oh, are they really going to break up? Is that really the end of it? If you're like me and you like the old westerns, it's like a guy's got 15 bad guys surrounding him and he's in a hole with one bullet. Is he going to live? Like, what's going to happen here? If you're reading those murder mysteries, this is where you're trying to figure out who killed this person, who, who did this. But there's something interesting. There's something interesting about reading a book. You don't have to go through all that angst and worry and wonder about what's going to happen. Any novel you can open to the last page and you can read the last page before you start the book. And suddenly, the conflict, the rising action, the angst, it doesn't matter. Because it's, you can see what's going on. He's like, oh no, are they going to break up? No, they're together on the last page of the book. Is he going to die in this moment? No, no, he's not going to die. He's alive on the last page of the book. Who killed him? Well, I read the last page of the book. I know it was, in fact, Colonel Mustard with the lampstand in the kitchen. Like, you can read the last page of the book and you can know through all of the moments of what's going wrong, what's about to happen. And that's what the book of Revelation is for us. In the current world where we see things and we don't like it, you can read the last page of the book and you can know what God's plan is. And that's why he put Revelation there for us. So we know that in the end, it's all gonna be okay. I love Billy Graham said, he said, I've, I've read the last page of the Bible. I know is going to be okay. So the question is, with this last time period, with this end times, like, when's Jesus coming back? Like, you didn't say anything about that. He's coming back. It's in relation to that seven years. Brian, when is Jesus coming back at this time? What did I tell you about not being able to tell you a date? I'm sorry, I can't do that. But, but listen to this. There are some different beliefs on when Jesus is coming back in relation to this end times, to this seven-year period. Some people believe that Jesus is coming back at the beginning of that seventh-year period, that if you are a believer in Christ, we don't have to go through that. And I, ooh, I hope that's right. That would be not fun to be here. But yet others, if you begin to study this, others will have a biblical point that possibly Jesus could come back anytime between the beginning and the midpoint of the tribulation period as the Bible clearly splits those two time periods in two. And others will say that Jesus is not coming back to the end of the tribulation period right before the battle of Armageddon. And there's arguments for all. And you may be disappointed in this this morning, but this morning I'm not going to take a hard stance on what the answer is. 
I'm not going to say exactly when in this time period Jesus is coming back. And I know for some of you that brings you concern because you're wondering, Brian, is that not a doctrinal issue? And if you're wondering what I'm talking about with a doctrinal issue, a doctrine is a belief about what the Bible teaches. And some of you are questioning, Brian, are you questioning a doctrine? Are you questioning something that, that is believed that we teach about the Bible? Well, let me read this to you. I went into our doctrinal statement. We have a list of things that we believe that the Bible teaches. And I want to read you something. The only thing in there that deals with the, uh, with the return, the timing of the return of Christ. Listen to this from our own doctrinal statement. It says this, The following statements are not to be binding upon the churches already affiliated with this association or to require adoption by churches petitioning this body for privilege of cooperation or to be a test of fellowship between brethren and churches. However, they do express a preponderance of opinion among the churches of the Baptist Missionary Association of America. This is straight from our doctrinal statement. What our doctrinal statement says, this is a predominant opinion. What most people believe about the return of Christ is a predominant opinion, not a definite or definitive doctrine. Now, the difference in those two things is a doctrine is something that we reserve for something we can definitely say on a biblical issue. The Bible speaks to this, and we know for a fact this is the way that God has done it. Things like a doctrinal stance that Jesus will return to get his people. We've already talked about two Bible verses today that prove Jesus Christ is coming back from both John 3 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But the predominant opinion is, when will he come back? And there's a difference of opinions of this because there's a difference in ways that people interpret a very cryptic book on that. See, Revelation is written mostly through symbology. And what we want to do is we want to make sure that we are loyal to the Bible and understanding it. So what I want to do is I want to take two very popular interpretations of Revelation, and I want to look at both. I'm not telling you which one is right. I'm not taking a hard stance on it. But I think it's interesting to look at the evidence of both. The first one is a pre-wrath interpretation of the events of Revelation. And this is based on the verses from 1 Thessalonians 1 through 10, or I'm sorry, 1, chapter 1, verse 10. And to wait for the Son from heaven, who he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which has delivered us from the wrath to come. In this interpretation of that particular scripture, what people who believe in the pre-wrath return of Jesus Christ will say is that that wrath that is poured out from, G, or from God is the, or I'm sorry, the tribulation is wrath poured out from God. And to be delivered from that means that we must be taken before. And in this, we believe in a, uh, two comings of Christ. One is Jesus comes in the cloud to rapture us as described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But secondly, a return to earth to rule at the end of the seven-year tribula tribulation period. Revelation 19. And to be honest with you, that's probably the, that's the opinion that most of us are familiar with. That's what I've grown up believing, and that's what many of you have grown up believing. But I want to caution us, not on believing that, I want to caution us on how we approach that topic and many other topics like it. We must be careful as a church not to elevate matters of opinion and interpretation to the level of doctrine. I'm going to say that again. We must be careful not to elevate matters of opinion and interpretation to the level of doctrine. And the reason for that is we cannot afford to risk the reputation of our doctrine. 
uh, of things when we say that I know without a shadow of the doubt that the Bible says that salvation is through faith only through Jesus Christ or that God exists in three persons in a trinity or that Jesus was not just asleep or it is not being symbolic when it says Jesus walked out of the grave. We believe because the Bible teaches definitively that Jesus walked out of that grave. He was dead and now he is alive. We cannot, we cannot risk the reputation of those statements on something that we have a matter of opinion on. So for that reason this morning, I want to look at a different option. I'm not saying this one's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I just want to look at a post-tribulation and I want to look at the biblical backing for that. So if you're not familiar with this, in a post-tribulation return of Christ theory, the return of Christ, many believe, happens in Revelation 19 when Jesus comes back at the Battle of Armageddon as one event where Jesus comes to get his people as well as to be the king of the word world. And there's a bunch of reasons people believe this. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but there's two things that I find striking that I think is important for us to look at. Number one, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it talks of the rapture, and then again in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 8, at the coming of the battle of Armageddon of Jesus, there's no distinction between the words it has for Jesus' presence, arrival, or coming. But perhaps more importantly, something to look at is Matthew 24 in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus speaks of the tribulation. Throughout his, his teaching here, he warns of the Antichrist and he references Daniel, the great abomination, which is another prophecy of the Antichrist. He talks of wars and famine, talks of persecution of believers, he talks of false messiahs and the greatest distress ever known to man. What's he describing? He's describing the tribulation period. I want you to read the words or listen to the words of Jesus after that. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven and all the people of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four ends, from one end of the heavens to the other. So in this, it appears that it could be Jesus saying that he returns after the tribulation. And this is why, I'm not telling you which one to believe. I'm not telling you which one is right. This is why we've got to be careful with interpretation. Because what we have is we have puzzle pieces that Jesus tells us what's going on. And you can arrange those puzzle pieces in different ways. One of them is right, one of them is wrong. But in a matter of opinion and interpretation, we must be careful. So if you ask me, Brian, what do you believe? When will Jesus come back? Will we be here? Will we not be here for the tribulation? When is Jesus coming to get us, Brian? I promise not to do this. I'm going to take a hard stance. I'm going to take a hard stance on that question. And here is my answer to that question. Is I trust God completely on whatever plan he has. And when a follower of Christ trusts God completely with whatever plan he has, the wins, the hows, the wheres, or the whys, they don't matter to us. And as Christians, instead of tying ourselves up in these arguments and disagreements over matters of interpretation or matters of opinion, we have to stand as a group of people that say, I trust my God, and that is enough. Thursday night, I was here with a group of men. We got some big things coming up at Ramsey Heights, and we were preparing um, some things and, and just uh, talking about what it's going to look like to make disciples here at church in the, in the near future. I got home about 8 o'clock that night, 
And um, at my house, 8 o'clock is bath time. Uh, not for me, for Oakley, for my daughter. Uh, so don't, you can come to my house at 8 o'clock. I'm not taking a bath. But it's 8 o'clock, and, and I walk in the house, and I know when I walk in the house and I don't hear things crashing and screaming and crying, I know that my daughter is in the bathtub because that's where she's the happiest at. She's like half duck. And so uh, we, I walk back there, and what I always do is I walk back there, and I just let them know I'm home because they get really scared if I don't. And so as I'm walking down the, high, uh, down the uh, hallway, I hear this argument between my wife and my daughter. Yes, they do argue. Um, my daughter is saying, cold. And my wife's saying, no, baby, it's not cold. Mama, cold. No, no baby, it's, it's not cold. And this goes on for a long time. And I poke my head in and I say, hey, baby, how are you guys doing? I let them know I'm home. And I go on and I'm taking off my clothes and, and shoes and putting my watch up and all that stuff. And, and next thing I know, there is a, a, she'll love when she's older and I tell these stories, a soaking wet, naked Oakley standing in the hallway. And she said, daddy, daddy, like, what, baby? And she does this number. That means I want your hand. And so I reach over there and I let her grab my hand and she walks me back down the hall, still dripping wet, by the way. And she walks me to the bathroom and she's got my hand, and she says, Daddy, and she points to the bathwater, cold. Now, let me just be clear. We do not give our daughter cold baths. She is very well loved and taken care of. And so I'm, I'm holding her hand, and I reach down there, and Jessica's just looking at me like, I don't know what the issue is. We've been arguing about this all night. And I reach my hand in there, and it's perfectly warm. And I said, baby, that's not cold. And she goes, thank you, Daddy, and climbs right back in the bathtub. <laughs> Jessica just looks at me like, oh, I'm going to kill you. And I, meanwhile, I'm like... Dad of the year, dad magic. Listen to me. When it comes to trusting God's plan, we can be like a little girl who thinks her bathwater is too cold. But all we have to hear is our God say, I've got this. And for us, that is enough. So here is a church, we believe without a shadow of a doubt, this is a doctrinal statement that Jesus is coming back. And our last take home truth is we can trust the timing and the purpose of Jesus's return. There's only one thing that matters in this discussion. There's only one thing that really points to us here today as we wait on the return of Jesus. And the question is, what group of people do we fall into? Do we fall into the group of people who have hope that when Jesus comes back and he comes back as a king and all of his glory, I can point to him and say, that's my king. I've been working in that kingdom. I've served you all of my life. Or do we say, oh no, it's an invading king coming into the kingdom I've built for myself. And that's bad news for me. Last thing, in the Bible, the return of Jesus, there is up to 42 different passages that point to the return of Jesus Christ. 22 of them talk about that being a moment of hope and they always reference believers. 20 of them talk about that being a moment of judgment and pain and fear for unbelievers. And we can walk out of here today with the assurance that for us that the return of Jesus Christ is a moment of hope for us. All we have to do all we have to do is place our faith in Jesus Christ and just say I believe that you are who you say you are and I choose to follow you because I know that you are God. You've been sitting here for weeks. I say it every week. Today's the day. It's time. It's time for you to make that step. It's time for you to come to know him and to live with that hope that Jesus Christ is coming for you like I live that he's coming for me.